At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture this week is Tim Evans. Uh, Tim is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, where are we going to begin today? Well, um, after the delay from Sajid Javid, there seems to be uh, some form and some shape with the government's plans to cope with the enormous backlog now engulfing, and I think that really is the right word, engulfing the NHS. Um, And the first thing is that it seems to be that the government is planning to put an awful lot of elective surgery uh, the way of Britain's private hospitals. But the shocking thing uh, about uh, what's going on is that not only are the current waiting lists already well over 6 million, we know there were 6.1 million people waiting back in December of last year, and many of those people were waiting uh, more than a year for treatment and surgery, some of them waiting a lot longer than that. But we now know that the government's own models are starting to predict that there could be 9 or 10 million people on the waiting list uh, by March 2024. In fact, in fact the government models suggest um, that, that the backlog, even if their plans work, the, the, the backlog will only peak and start to come down in the spring of 2024. And so it's with that, you know, extraordinary figure in mind that I have to say, uh, I agree with what um, uh, Sir Edward Lee said the other day in Parliament, uh, which is that um, people, particularly older people, um, who need care and treatment, they should be given tax relief on their private health insurance. In fact, I would go further and I would say that it should not just be private health insurance, but it should be all forms of private health cover because private medical insurance, PMI as it's technically called, is one thing, um, but private health cover, there are many, many uh, millions of people who have uh, private health cash plans uh, and coverage and are members of discretionary health schemes like Benenden in Kent, um, that cover from everything from spectacles and mm. cover the dentistry right through to... But that's never going to happen, Tim, is it? It's political... Di- however sensible it may be, first of all, it's political dynamite. Second, I know, being an, an older person myself, that private health cover becomes almost completely unaffordable to most people once you actually get to retirement age. So the premiums just completely shoot up. Um, but also, uh, apart from the political dynamite that any minister 
um, would face trying to actually get this through. It, didn't we we have the, the problem that, that during COVID, the private sector was, in, in essence, opened up to the NHS, who didn't then make proper use of it? Well, the first Have I got that right? Well, the, the, the NHS was not good at using uh, the independent sector everywhere. A lot of it depended on the local relationships uh, that local NHS trusts struck up. For, and, you know, and, and to all extent, they were prepared to use the independent sector facilities available. But I'm not so sure um, that, that this is politically... Uh, as unfeasible as you think. First right. of all, um, uh, I, I think that when you move into 2023 and 2024, and let's be clear, there has to be a general election um, in 2024, the prospect of, of there being nine, 10, or even more millions of people on a waiting list can itself cause um, extraordinary damage to uh, the government. And so we are living in, a, in extraordinary times. And when you have a crisis, all kinds of unexpected things can happen. And if you don't believe me, just, just cast your mind back, for example, to the 1979 election, who prior to that election believed that we would have things like um, the internet uh, or a privatized British telecom or uh, all the sort of modernizations, you know, students paying their tuition mm. fees uh, and all the things that have happened. So first of all, um, shift and change does happen, but it often only happens off the back of a crisis. And I think all the figures, all the predictions are very clear that the NHS is heading now um, into the biggest crisis in its history. COVID and the pandemic was one thing, but if you are in a country of less than 70 million people and one in seven is on a waiting list, then that can come with severe yes. monetary and electoral costs. So I'm not someone who never says never. Now, the first thing is the people who are really going to suffer here are those older people. And you're right that as you get older, um, private medical insurance becomes more expensive. It certainly becomes more expensive if you're not given tax relief. So I think that you could well see, and I'm going to make a rather ironic comment in a minute, I think you could see this government um, actually uh, suggest um, uh, that, that this policy could be enacted. I think mm -hmm. there could be some tax relief for people, uh, for men and women, who are 66 or above, i.e. the refund age, but given the numbers of people in the trade union movement who often have their private health cash plans and often have them through their trade union, I wouldn't be surprised as the Labour Party under Keir Starmer becomes more pragmatic, leaves behind the age of Corbynism, I wouldn't be surprised if Labour started to embrace some form of policy already. After all, it was only two months ago that Keir Starmer's Labour Party said that it was now their policy that if they were elected, they would work in partnership with Britain's private hospitals. Yeah, Tim, dark question. 
Because we see the waiting list discussed all the time, but what exactly is it? Is it the waiting list of people for operations? So, or yeah. is it more general than that? Well, it's people waiting for treatment and surgery. It also includes people who are waiting for diagnostics. Now, that's even worse. I mean, imagine that you had a lumpen or a bump or something serious, and it was taking three, four, five months, six months to get your MRI, your CT, uh, or whatever, your scan. Um, you know, there are an awful lot of, for example, cancers mm. uh, that can metastasize. There are an awful lot of primary tumors that, that can metastasize and can deliver, you know, secondary effects in that sort of time. And it seems to me that as our population ages, and our population is a lot older now mm. than it was when, when, for example, Gordon Brown got rid of the tax relief on private medical cover in the late 1990s. We have an older population. It seems to me this country is entering in the next two years an eye of a storm which has the power to sweep away any government, I repeat, one in seven on a waiting list. Um, And they might not think it's possible today. They might not think it's expedient. But mark my words, as this takes hold, you actually could end up with a race between Labour and Tories to embrace a new partnership settlement. Presumably, tax relief. Presumably, a lot of the people on that waiting list are going to be in condition of extreme pain, and one hates to be morbid about this, but I mean, many people on the waiting list will die before they get the treatment that they need. One assumes exactly, and in 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 the electoral sphere of politics. You know, you only need uh, a small number of people to switch sides. Mm. You can win a majority in the House of Commons with the switching of what? Five, six, seven, eight, nine percent of the electorate. So what is done to groups at the margin, particularly older people, for example, who are waiting for their treatment, diagnostics and care, that can have serious ramifications. These are not people who do not use the NHS. These are people who are not paying their tax. These are people who are not not committed to the NHS. These are people who uh, have paid their tax. They're not being given the service and treatment in the timely manner that they expected. And they are prepared to ease pressure on the NHS by paying twice. Uh, The only issue here is, should they be given a little bit of relief and for elderly people, of course, that may be a little, because unless they've got a very handsome pension plan, most elderly people don't have that much income on which to pay tax anyway. Indeed, exactly. Now, what's so bizarre about Britain in the European context is we're the only country in Europe that, that has this sort of Berlin Wall mentality between NHS providers mm. and vendor providers. You know, and I think that it's that Berlin Wall mentality um, that is going to mean that if we're not careful, if we're not pragmatic, we could end up with the biggest waiting list and the biggest health crisis, even though I think we did reasonably well during the pandemic. And obviously, we were at the vanguard of delivering vaccines and, all, and, and we've come out of things far quicker than many other European countries. I do think that we could snatch defeat from the jaws of victory if we don't do something urgently to get on top of that um, waiting list crisis. And that's not just about NHS patients being able to go to independent hospitals, but it's also about encouraging 
a greater balance between public and private funding um, through tax relief, again, to ease pressure on the NHS. Okay, Tim. Thank you very much indeed. Time for us to change subject. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Chair Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. So what is our second topic for today going to be, Tim? I think the second topic uh, really has to be policing. Um, uh, Cressida the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, seems to be in the press uh, uh, facing some kind of policing crisis uh, almost every day of the week now. But there are other police forces that are also um, uh, facing new stories and crises. In fact, if you look at uh, the public opinion polls, if you look at um, uh, all kinds of data, um, ever greater swathes of the British public feel that that policing is distant, it's removed from them. I think it's 48% of people now, uh, I think this is Office of National Statistics claim that 48% of people really never see uh, a, a bobby on the beat um, and that just as there's a sort of crisis in NHS waiting times so police response times uh, don't always meet their targets um, and um, uh, there's this tremendous sense of crisis. In, in recent days we've seen Sadiq Khan saying that the Metropolitan Police has what he claims to be days or weeks to come up with a new plan to tackle racism and sexism and all kinds of misogyny, lots of cultural problems there. And and I think there really is a looming crisis for the police. I've long noted that for every one policeman and woman in this country, there are more than now two private security guards and that the private sector is becoming ever better regulated and ever more sophisticated in its capability. But from a state point of view, there's only certain amount you can contract out and there's only a, a certain amount that um, that our high streets or our supermarkets or our industrial estates can afford to hire in from the private sector. So I think there are real challenges and I think there are real challenges facing the police. And I think one challenge is a challenge of leadership. And leadership isn't just about people at the top of our police services. It goes right down to the bobbies or the probationers on the beat. Um, And I think the first thing is, it's noticeable that we now spend more inspecting and regulating our police forces than we do in actual uh, uh, their own development, their training and, and, and their sort of their CPD. Uh, their continual professional development. Um, If you joined uh, the military, uh, if you join industry, uh, if you join our university sector, you are expected to do CPD, to learn. You know, 
when you get your PhD and if you become a lecturer, you know, that's not, that's not the end of the journey, that's the start. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you join the military and you go up to major, you then go to staff college and you then go on further training. Um, there is not that much training actually in the police. We have a National Police Staff College, but there needs to be, I think, a lot more um, training, a lot more investment, a lot more in monitoring uh, and investment in people's personal development. Um, and also, I think that, that uh, we need to rethink uh, what it is to be a police officer. Um, I've long believed that law enforcement, particularly when done in the state sector, should be something that really should require a degree and that you need to have a serious and, and smart officer cadre, really well educated people who are developed and trained. Um, so I think there's an awful lot of work. But my biggest takeaway is, boy, have we come a long way. And are we falling short from when the world believed uh, that the British police service were the best in the world? Um, uh, I think there's an awful lot of work to be done. Yeah, yes. But is there the political will to, to do it? I mean, complaints about the police, particularly from the general public, I mean, they've been growing for years, but they've been going on for years as well. This belief that, the, that for many people, the police aren't doing the things that they would expect the police to do, which is Bobby's on the beat, you know, coming round if your house gets burgled. These seem to be things that no longer are priorities for the police force. Yeah, I think that politicians of all stripes in the last half century have, I have to say, been unfair to the police. Um, the police have often taken the brunt of an awful lot of public policy failure and their remit uh, has expanded. Um, many police finding, find themselves doing work that has less to do with law enforcement and more with the sort of extruded and expanded form of social work. Mm. And so I think that, that, it, that the Home Office, which is probably one of the worst run departments, usually in Whitehall, um, that, that, that what we need to do is to be very clear about what policing is about and for policing to focus on real law enforcement. And by that, uh, I mean real crimes with real victims, not, uh, and not have them as sort of substitute social workers. Um, but the most important thing of all is I think we need um, to rethink uh, what we expect from the training, the leadership uh, in policing, and the sort of talent uh, that is attracted into our police services. Uh, and, you know, that will cost money, but it's going to cost an awful lot of more if the crime clear-up rates mm. continue to decline. I mean, we had the shocking figure recently that the British police, on average now, if you take the average constabulary, they're lucky to be solving more than 6% of reported crimes. In Georgian England, even back in the age, age of, you know, of thief takers and um, private uh, uh, associations for the prosecution of felons, 
the idea of a 6% clear up rate would have been regarded as not only parlous, but ludicrous. So what you say makes a good deal of sense, but it doesn't seem to me at the moment the government, of whatever stripe, but particularly governments at present, are very good at planning ahead and thinking what well, it is worth spending money for the long term because there'll be a benefit. They're far too concerned with who's going to win the election in you know up to five years time. We, we aren't very good at this long term planning and thinking, well, money spent or invested, depending whether you're the chancellor or somebody else, um, is actually going to bear fruit and going to be of economic benefit in the long run. The long run is something nobody seems to be prepared to, to, to consider anymore. Yes, and often when you look at um, the NHS or you look at policing, often you find that these services are run not necessarily purely for the benefit of patients um, or or citizen, but they're very much run with what you might loosely call the incentives of serving the dispatch box in the House of Commons, mm. i.e. they're driven more by vote motivation than they are by actual uh, health outcomes or or, or law and order um, outcomes. Yes. And, and so, you know, and the other thing is, you know, of course, if you're a politician of one stripe and you think you're going to be out of power in 10 or 15 years, there's almost a disincentive. Why would you want to make some investments and make some changes that will benefit the other team when they're in, on duty and when yes, they're yes. playing the glory? So there are huge problems here. Um, I mean, one of the classic problems, you know, one of the, I think the, the biggest issues we face, uh, for example, going back to the NHS, is the issue of workforce planning. It, 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 you do not have to be a rocket scientist to predict the size of the British population in the next five or 10 years and the sorts of health issues that are likely to loom and then to work out roughly how many doctors or nurses you mm. need and then train on that basis. But no government in my lifetime, no Labour, Tory, Lib, Lab, Tory, Liberal, you know, you name it, mm. whichever way you cut it, none of them have done anything like um, an effective job on workforce planning. And, and I go back, it's to mm. do with the incentives. This is the problem. So yeah. um, serious problems ahead, because to wrap this bit up, um, if you continue to have a health service and indeed a police service that is deemed increasingly to be failing the public, then it's almost as if people are paying their taxes and politicians are issuing checks that they find increasingly difficult to cash. Yes, yes. Um, and you get a, a, a greater gulf between, between the public um, and their expectations. Uh, Tim, thank you very much indeed. Let us uh, change to another subject. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. And we've had a couple of topics that probably haven't been terribly inspiring, rather rather depressing, Tim, even though you provide solutions. But I think we're going to look at something a little bit more optimistic now, aren't we? We are. We're going to look at uh, this recent breakthrough um, in nuclear fusion. Um, uh, I've got... Uh, uh, the father of a very dear friend, um, he's a retired gentleman, he's an engineer, but for the sake of disguise, we'll call him John, 
But this is a man who has had an extraordinary career in engineering, worked all over the world, and for a time, I believe, did some work at the Jet Laboratories just outside mm. Oxford. And it's this laboratory that has just had an extraordinary breakthrough um, on nuclear fusion. Basically, what they've been able to do um, in, in loose terms is create um, a mini star, um, an extraordinary amount of heat that sort of perpetuated for five seconds. And whilst um, the amount of electricity generated, I understand could only uh, amount that could only power some 60 kettles. Um, it, it is a breakthrough. It proves that the concept works and that these kind of, this kind of you know, fusion can, can, be, yes. can, can be created on Earth. And over um, in the United States at MIT, um, they also are, are having some breakthroughs. Whereas for our entire life, Simon, everyone has always said, oh, well, the future will be with nuclear fusion. We will then have clean, um, virtually free uh, energy um, in a sort of utopian future. The, the sort of things that we used to watch on that wonderful television program, yes. uh, Tomorrow's World, where people were going to be dressed yes, in yes. silver costumes or whatever. This is a breakthrough. Whereas it's always been, oh, it's always 30 or 40 years ahead or, or 50 years from now, this breakthrough and what has also happened in MIT recently means that, that scientists are talking much more now in terms of, of the next decade or two. And the most telling thing is that serious investors, people like Jeff Bezos um, and, and lots of other billionaires, um, Bill Gates and others are, are starting to invest in this technology. And so, you know, if we want cleaner, cheaper fuel, I know that there's a lot in the press at the moment to depress us all about energy prices. Yes. But that prospect of there being cheap, clean um, uh, and, and, and safer uh, energy in the middle of this century, it really looks to be finally coming about. Yes, uh, it's obviously impressive that they've made advances. Though, of course, even though the power generated wasn't wasn't massive, it also took more power to create it than they actually got out in the end. But they appear to believe this is a big breakthrough, so we shall have to hope that they are they are right. I mean, obviously, uh, nuclear fission has a, a very bad rap at the moment, um, even though we are still investing it in this this country. I, I've I've known some people in the nuclear industry. My father was a nuclear um, physicist for a, for a time, and I've met people who've worked more recently. And they all tell me or agree with this one thing, as far as nuclear fission is concerned, that, that we could actually have much safer nuclear power um, using thorium. But there's almost no development using thorium because apparently it won't go bang. You can't make weapons out of it. Well, and and the, I find that the, very depressing. That, that's the key point. I mean, that, 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 that is the open secret, isn't it? That yeah. The, the, the French and the British and the Americans, the Russians and the Chinese won't mm. uh, go the thorium route because we all have nuclear weapon programs. You know, we have in Britain the Trident D2 missile system, previously we had Polaris. So absolutely. Um, but the dream has to be uh, that we can go down this road and that we can have uh, this giant leap forward mm, yes. um, and, and that, that we can go from the sort of dirty and costly energy of the past it is something rather spectacular and new. Well, Tim, nice to end on an encouraging note 
after some uh, less than um, optimistic um, uh, topics to begin with. But uh, I will be back talking to Tim again in a fortnight's time. That's Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Just remains for me to say thank you. Talk to you again, Tim, soon, I hope. Thank you. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.